Hey there. This episode was originally intended to air in February and recorded around the new year, well before the coronavirus upended so many of our lives. It talks about grand changes and an admittedly idealistic vision of our neighborhood's future. Considering the current state of the city and with the MTA in freefall and a federal government refusing to set aside the funds needed to keep it operating, with overnight service suspended and major cuts looming, and thousands of union workers facing cuts, layoffs, and contract changes, I debated whether there was any relevancy to this episode anymore. But you know what? I think we could use a little bit of optimism about the future of our city and the neighborhood that we call home. We will come out of this crisis and we will recover, albeit with sacrifices, some needless and some brave. But that means that we still need to look to the future and envision that future as something worth reaching. I hope that this episode does that. On one level, it's about a rail line. On another, it's how development can and should work when a community leads the way. So here it is, the Triborough. Hello there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge. I'm your host, Dan, broadcasting to you from our cozy little studio in beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. This is going to be a solo one for me today. And if you've been following our show from the beginning, you know that I'm a slight massive nerd, especially about transportation and infrastructure policy. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to know how cities worked and why. I remember taking the R train as a kid staring out the window as the train passed between Bay Ridge Avenue and 59th Street. For a brief moment, there's a flicker of natural light as you look out and down onto a set of rail tracks that lead out to the Narrows and the Hudson River. That brief moment where an otherwise deep subway tunnel is actually exposed to open air, that fascinated me. As I explored more and as I grew up, I became familiar with how there are bridges that connect Bay Ridge to Sunset Park to the north. They span a rail line that doesn't really seem to be all that active. It's just a big jumble of tracks that seem to dead end at the water's edge. It's called, appropriately, the Bay Ridge Branch. Some of that deep valley-like right-of-way, known as an open cut, is used by N-trains as they split off from 59th Street. But three tracks are exclusively owned by the Long Island Railroad, the LIRR. And unlike the LIRR that you're familiar with, they're freight only. The tracks, like I said, they stop at the water's edge. It's known as the 65th Street Yard. Believe it or not, trains destined for the 65th Street Yard actually can be transferred onto car floats, as in rail car floats. These barges have rail tracks embedded in their floor. They float up to the edge of the 65th Street Yard, they dock at a small transfer bridge, and once docked, you can actually drive a freight train onto the car float and, in pieces, ferry entire trains worth of goods across the Narrows to be reassembled on the other side of the Hudson at the Greenville Yards in Jersey City. For a century, this was the way that freight moved out onto Long Island, and not just at Bay Ridge all along the South Brooklyn waterfront. But the Bay Ridge Branch's 65th Street Yard is kind of all that remains. 
There's a rich and fascinating history behind how freight moves into Brooklyn and Long Island. Cool sounding names like the Selkirk Hurdle and the Cross Harbor Freight Tunnel. But today on the show, we're not going to be talking about freight and cargo and truck traffic. We're going to talk about passengers, reuse, and reinvention. We're going to talk about a plan known as the Triborough. No, not, not the bridge that connects the Bronx, Queens, and Manhattan. No, the Triborough is a proposed rail line connecting the three best boroughs, the Bronx, Queens, and Brooklyn. That's right, no Manhattan. And it's important because all of our existing transit options really heavily prioritize Manhattan. In fact, there's only one core subway line that doesn't run through Manhattan, and it's the G train. And even so, it still hugs the East River and never really leaves sight of the Manhattan skyline. That's because as the subways were built, three competing companies, the BMT, the IRT, and the IND, they were all rushing to connect the suburbs to the business districts in Manhattan. That's where the money was. They didn't much care about connecting the bunch of poorly developed residential districts to each other. That was for the trolleys, and then the highways, and the buses. As the boroughs grew into massive cities in their own right, though, the moment had passed for the city to easily build borough-to-borough lines. That led Manhattan to remain the center hub of an increasingly clogged tangle of spokes leading out to the outer boroughs. It also meant that, economically, Manhattan held all the power. If you live in Queens, there are two places you can easily work. Queens or Manhattan. If you live in the Bronx, there are two places you can easily work. The Bronx or Manhattan. The same thing with shopping, apartments. It made Manhattan real estate and Manhattan employers hold all the upper hands in salary and price negotiations. They set the tone since they were at the easily accessible center of the network. Even in Brooklyn, if you're a small business out in Bay Ridge, you don't get the labor pool of people living in Gravesend. It takes nearly 45 minutes by bus to commute here from there. The same as if you commuted to Midtown Manhattan, so why not just work in Midtown? It has more job openings with less hassle. So that Bay Ridge store is at a disadvantage when it comes to hiring, and it's influenced by what the Manhattan stores try to do. And that was pretty much how our most efficient mode of transit, our subways, were laid out. It's also almost impossible to rectify. When the subways were first dug out, they moved along nearly empty streets and past potato patches, as Henry Stewart mentions in his recent book, How Bay Ridge Became Bay Ridge. Nowadays, a new subway line means wiggling around layers of unmapped pipes and infrastructure and shoring up foundations for thousands of homes and businesses and billions of dollars. But one big chunk of our city's rail lines wasn't laid out with Manhattan at the center. You guessed it the freight lines, including the Bay Ridge branch, it bypassed Manhattan completely, running instead from one right-of-way from Bay Ridge to Hellgate Bridge out in Astoria, and then on a few other tracks and lines out to Co-op City in the Bronx and beyond. Three boroughs connected as one. A tri-borough line. The freight lines were laid out pretty early. And as the 20th century wore on, the freight gave way to trucks and planes, and those tracks were increasingly out of use. In fact, the 65th Street Yard only resumed freight operations in 2012 after nearly 44 years of being mostly abandoned. And it was in 1996 that one of the most storied and oldest planning groups in the country, the Regional Plan Association, or the RPA, 
proposed transforming those old series of rail lines, of which the Bay Ridge branch was a part, into a unified passenger system known as the Triborough. It didn't get much play. <laughs> it was part of what the RPA does every few decades, propose a massive, comprehensive, tri-state area-wide planning document. The Triborough back then was just a piece of a huge regional rail network revitalization that the RPA was proposing. And so it was pretty much ignored. In 2008, the MTA's director at the time briefly mentioned the Triborough as a possible part of the agency's 40-year plan, which basically meant nothing. Maybe one of the reasons was the cost, which can sound high, one or two billion dollars. And that sounds like a lot until you remember that just recently, burying the BQE in Brooklyn Heights had a proposed cost of 11 billion bucks. Or that the three new stations on the 2nd Avenue subway line cost 2.4 billion. That's more than the Triborough estimate, and it's just the 2nd Avenue line's stations. Honestly, the Triborough is a steal, and that's because it pretty much already exists. Still, the Triborough is a somewhat lonely proposal. It's a moonshot, but without a JFK. A bunch of city council people are on board, including our own Justin Brannon, but it really doesn't have a key group pushing it toward its creation other than the RPA. A lot of that is because the project is simply so massive in scope. Connecting three boroughs together, it can be hard to wrap your head around what that means. It's easier to simply scoff and consider it undoable or bad. And actually, a lot of people get it mixed up with the Cross Harbor Freight Tunnel and the idea of truck traffic increasing and whatnot. So I thought for this episode, we're going to pull away from the big picture for a bit, and we're going to imagine a future commuter's walk to the Triborough, maybe a few years after it's opened. The picture I'm about to paint is mostly from a speculative plan designed by the firm's Only If and One Architecture. The RPA sponsored them to imagine what a fleshed-out, socially conscious and holistic triborough line might actually look like, and I'm going to riff on it. But before we go on our little walking tour, I should stress this is just a possible future. But I think it's one worth fighting for. And while it's clearly an ideal, it's important for us to have ideals, especially because change is inevitable, and unscrupulous developers have their own ideals about what Bay Ridge's future is supposed to look like. As a neighborhood, it's important to envision what we want, even if we don't always know how to get there. So, let's walk to the train. The year is 2040. You're walking down Fifth Avenue north of the Alpine. You're on the northern edge of the neighborhood, and you've just passed Leif Erikson Park, headed north towards Sunset Park. On your right, the big car dealership of Bay Ridge Nissan is long gone. It was eminent domain a few years back as the city began preparing the land around the new Triborough line. Instead of rows of unsold cars, immigrant-owned businesses are flourishing now as part of a new light industrial and manufacturing sector. The formerly rundown warehouses on the border of Sunset and Bay Ridge have turned into a bustling hub of manufacturing, medical, retail, and offices. It's no longer a border between the two neighborhoods, it's actually a destination in its own right. Standing on the old car lot is a building five stories tall, with a metal shop on the ground floor and some welding noises faintly audible from the outside. A few people bustle in and out, a reminder of Bay Ridge's blue-collar past. 
The shop mostly makes containers and canisters to satisfy the demand from the food startups that have taken up residence in the expanded Brooklyn Army Terminal by the water in the 60s. Up on the second floor are signs for a new vocational training school that just opened up, and a floor above that, a Fujianese community center shares space with the Scandinavian History Museum, which look out over Leif Erikson Park. On the top two floors are new residential units, buffered from the noise of the manufacturing below, and with stellar views out toward Owl's Head and rising over the Gowanus Expressway. One third of these new apartments are affordable, and the demand is pretty high. In fact, population growth has boomed along the entirety of the Triborough Line since it opened, absorbing a big chunk of New York's population boom. The city wanted to expand for a long time, but it just didn't have the capacity. But the higher development here really hasn't strained the infrastructure much. The rail line has linked together three boroughs worth of underutilized spaces that feed and play off each other. Much of that land was government owned and sold for a dollar. So Manhattan commutes are less common than they used to be because there's a new ring of jobs and businesses right here in the outer boroughs. For the few residents that still own cars along this ring, there's more than enough parking available. That old Nissan car lot used to store a bunch of its chunk of inventory on public streets. Those unsold cars are gone, and it frees up a lot of new space. One thing you notice as you walk past, there's no garage in the building. In fact, new local zoning codes prohibit it. It seems counterintuitive, I know, but it ends up genuinely ensuring that housing is affordable. One of your richer friends who lives in downtown Brooklyn, who has three carefully restored cars, was going to move into this building, but decided against it when he realized he'd have to park his restored antique cars out on the street. Instead, the people who moved in were more like the majority of Bay Ridge residents, low to middle class and carless. They're people who like being within walking distance of public transit and schools, and having a garageless building encourages them to move in. Bay Ridge's population increased, but its traffic stabilized. You pass by the new mixed-use development and head toward the northern border of Bay Ridge, the Gowanus Expressway. It's sadly still there, though underneath has changed. Between 65th Street and the highway, where there was once a chain-link fence and a ton of cars that are usually stored, there is now a verdant garden filled with knee-high reeds. These are known as bioswales, or rainwater gardens, and they absorb excess rainwater before they can rush off and overwhelm our nearby sewer systems. Ever since they put these in, not only here but across Bay Ridge and Diker Heights, the Owl's Head treatment plant doesn't smell so bad. The rain gardens make sure that the treatment plant down by the 69th Street Pier doesn't get hit with a ton of water all at once during big rains. Because when it gets hit with a lot of water pouring off the streets, it has less capacity to handle, you know, water from your toilet. So instead, it overflows the excess into the river, which stinks. So those rain gardens help spread out and slow the water that the treatment plant needs to process, often across days and weeks. So when you take your morning jogs down by Shore Road now in 2040, the water looks a lot nicer. Less trash spills out onto the river or washes up onto the rocks lately, and whales are actually a more common sight in the Narrows in the past few years. Well, it's not part of the rail line per se. These bioswales are a part of the redevelopment along the entire rail line, which includes lots of new green spaces. So moving along, you're crossing beneath the Guanus Expressway and walking out over the bridge spanning the rail line itself. 
If you press up against the chain link, you get a bird's eye view over the wide right of way that the Triborough uses. This is the Bay Ridge branch. It used to be uh, grungy. Weeds and graffiti. An end train rattles down on the two northern tracks like they always did. A bit lower down in the south, there are the two Triborough tracks. There used to be three here, but one of them is actually submerged below the ground now as it makes its way down into what's known as the Cross Harbor Freight Tunnel, a massive new infrastructure project that we do not have the time to get into on the podcast today. What's visible above ground is beautiful. Part of reusing the existing freight lines meant renovating them. That meant landscaping. You're looking out over new saplings planted to control erosion on the formerly dirt slopes, and as you look east, squinting into the morning sun towards Diker Heights, and along the tracks, you can see new parkland occupying the heights on either side of the valley. At 170 feet wide, there is more than enough room for a massive linear park along the right-of-way. Instead of security fences and weeds, the land at the top of the slopes are filled with new basketball courts, playgrounds, and more. This Triborough Park links directly to Leif Erikson and Owlset and it creates an uninterrupted strip of parkland from the water to 14th Avenue. It also contains a fully separated bike superhighway that runs all the way out to Co-op City following the Triborough route. A group of cyclists are actually passing below you on the bike superhighway as you're walking over the bridge. They have baskets on the back of their bikes filled with groceries, probably heading home to what used to be the solely industrial stretch of 65th Street, starting at 7th Avenue and heading into Diker. With the new transit connections and the parkland, the strip over there has become a mixed residential district with apartments and light manufacturing below them. And when I say light, I mean light. It's stuffed with tailoring shops, 3D print spaces, bakeries, breweries, and coffee roasters. Stuff that doesn't generate much truck traffic, noise, or noxious fumes, but it does generate jobs. In fact, this is what a lot of old, old-school Bay Ridge really was, a mixed use. You would have bakeries and tailoring shops and fabric stores. This is technically light manufacturing, and this is what we can bring back to the neighborhood. So as you're looking out, though, a soft rattle comes through beneath your feet as a freight train bearing food company logos passes below you. The freight trains run about once an hour, but they don't really get in the way of passenger service. Mostly, they're carrying food. The Triborough connects to vital food distribution hubs in Hunts Point in the Bronx and the Brooklyn Terminal Market in Canarsie. In fact, without the renovations on the line, it's very unlikely that New York would have ever been able to handle the strain on its food supply that came from its population increases over the past few decades. As a soft breeze hits you as the train rushes by below, you notice another thing. The air seems to be a bit cleaner. Hunts Point out in the Bronx used to be where almost all of the city's food was trucked out from. It would come in on freight and then go out to the rest of the city on trucks, with the Triborough serving as a distribution corridor for a lot of that food multiple smaller freight yards with much smaller trucks became way more economical. And the Cross Harbor Freight Tunnel, which again we can't really dig into deeply here, meant that the semis coming across the Verrazano Bridge became much, much rarer. Combined with new plantings and sustainable development along the route, particulate matter in the air was reduced by a quarter. Sulfur dioxide dropped by nearly half. 
but your view of the actual Triborough line itself is brief, as you walk across the bridge and make a hard left on 60th toward the water. You're actually taking the long way to the station in this walking tour. It'd have been easiest to just head toward Ridge Boulevard and then walk a few blocks north to the station entrance on 64th Street, but you need to pick up one of your friends first. You're both teachers at Brooklyn College, and you're both headed to work. Your friend lives on 60th off of 4th in a new apartment building complex. They used to actually live in a single family home on the same block, but co-ops are becoming a bit more popular lately now that more residents are banding together into community land trusts, and let's get into that. Years back, before the Triborough line was opened, a bunch of people on your friend's block gathered together and pooled the value of their real estate in order to purchase a corner lot on 60th. Many of them were older residents who had their kids move out and were looking for a good senior facility, but none existed. With their wealth pooled, they actually built cooperatively an entirely new apartment block, one specifically designed for senior living. With enough room for themselves and a few extra units they could rent out to help with paying for the new building. But before they all moved, they were worried that their old properties would be bought up by speculative developers looking to take advantage of the new Triborough line. Developers who would certainly vomit up luxury condos all over the old single-family lots they were leaving behind, possibly making the neighborhood gentrify and definitely become unaffordable. So your friend and her neighbors formed a CLT, a community land trust. Back in 2017, the New York City Council approved a bill allowing CLTs to form, which meant that your friend and her neighbors could form a nonprofit that retained ownership of the land that their properties existed on for 99 years. Bound by their nonprofit status and retaining collective rights over nearly the entire block, they could stipulate that their old homes be retained as affordable single-family units all while selectively creating and funding denser apartment blocks that fit their own needs and let the neighborhood upzone, but slowly and in a way that was community-controlled and limited displacement. Without community land trusts, the Triborough route could have become a feeding ground for hungry developers like most other major infrastructure projects in the United States. Instead, the people who lived there became ground floor investors in a carefully densifying neighborhood that still remained affordable and recognizable. Importantly, the area remained a vibrant cultural mix of Latin American, Middle Eastern, and Chinese residents who in turn helped keep many of the local cultural institutions and businesses anchored. In fact, the mosque on 62nd Street ended up needing to be expanded into a new building. Old institutions got stronger thanks to a once rare combination of increasing development and low displacement. That's something that didn't happen very often in New York before community land trusts, which are definitely another thing that we're going to have to devote a whole podcast to in the future. You pick up your friend who's waiting outside their apartment, and as you chat and walk down to the water, you pass a few Chinatown dollar vans. They are independently owned vans that help ferry local residents to the various Chinatowns across New York City and beyond. And you notice one destination is missing as of late. Elmhurst. The Elmhurst Chinatown is now only 28 minutes away on the Triborough line. And that's about as fast as a dollar van would have gone. So yeah, the Triborough can kill a few of those independent buses, and probably a couple of other things too. 
a lot of those buses were there to provide a service that the city refused to provide. And it's now provided. It's a stark contrast from a few blocks north where the BQX trolley currently runs. Yeah, in my scenario, the BQX exists. The BQX was a de Blasio proposal for a waterfront trolley connecting Industry City to Red Hook and beyond up into Williamsburg. It was built only after developers had already bought up all the property in Industry City and primed it for gentrification. It was the opposite of transit-based development, where development and transit are part of the same holistic plan. Anyway, at this point, you've walked down closer to the water, and the massive tan edifice of the Brooklyn Army Terminal rises up to greet you. Built in 1918, it's over 120 years old by 2040. It was built to last, designed to help ship troops and materials out during World Wars 1 and 2. In the 2020s, it became a hub for small businesses and startups, including Biobat Art Space, which we mentioned in one of our previous podcasts on art galleries. That renaissance was tiny compared to what happened when the Triborough was built next door. Instead of a broad parking lot surrounding the building, a vast complex of low-rise extensions and wings hug the original building. Through the windows of the buildings, you can see office workers getting ready to start their day. The Food and Drug Administration logo hangs proudly on one of the wings. They actually moved out of their old industry city digs in 2000, but they have since returned and set up a new state-of-the-art lab to help keep tabs on food heading out into Long Island and New York City. Other, heavier industry bustle within the buildings too, stuff that would be too loud, heavy, or truck-intensive for the mixed residential districts. The new buildings and extensions provide new office, retail, and manufacturing space to satisfy the demand for new jobs along the line. Small trucks exit the basement and sides of the building, and they quickly merge onto a new direct on-ramp attached to the Gowanus Expressway. No movement onto local roads unless they are delivering locally, and when they do, it's usually smaller trucks and vans, since their routes are much shorter. Since car traffic has been decreasing too, the Gowanus is mostly a freight route, and there's talk of simply raising it altogether for a light rail line, and providing express subway service up to 95th Street. But off to the left, you can see, nestled between the old 65th Street yard and the Army Terminal, the Triborough Station building. A beautiful stone structure, it mimics the original Army Terminal design with broad arches and tan brickwork, the kind that screams 1930s Works Progress Administration. It's designed to fit the historic character of the Army Terminal, which is on the National Register of Historic Places. Its main entrance is on 64th Street. As you turn and walk toward 64th, you pass the few bus stops that line 2nd Avenue, which eventually turns into Ridge Boulevard and Bay Ridge. A few shuttle buses are out front, waiting to take people a few blocks east to 59th Street. The sidewalk is raised up a bit here too, letting passengers easily walk onto the waiting buses without needing to use any steps. A B9 bus pulls out and a B69 pulls up behind it. Buses are probably going to realign to take advantage of this Triborough line. People walk onto the bus having prepaid transfers. The Triborough syncs up with the same payment system as the subway and the wider passenger rail lines like the LIRR, and I guess everyone's using an Omni payment system or whatever. It's 2040, I guess it'll still be a thing. So you make your way into the station. It's a long stone hall that runs nearly 1,500 feet, about a block and a half. Tall windows let in the morning light, 
and above you a big signboard updates with departure times, not just for the Triborough. There are different icons, some for buses outside, others show departure times for ferries. The Rockaway Ferry leaves in 15 minutes, the Sandy Hook Ferry in 30, the Jersey City Ferry is just about to depart. A bustle of people rush off toward the water. The Triborough is the fastest route to the harbor for three boroughs worth of people. Thus, Brooklyn Army Terminal sees more passengers than the Manhattan Ferry Terminals nowadays. It also means that the New York City ferry system is actually making a profit for once. And it also connects local workers to job markets throughout the harbor. So as you make your way along the main station hall, at the far end, you can see green hills rising up behind the Brooklyn Army Terminal between the building and the water. The waterfront parking lots are gone, and they're replaced with green parkland and hills. Some kids are flying kites on the hill, and it catches a nice breeze. But the hills have a less scenic purpose. They act as storm barriers, protecting the facility and the rail yards from coastal flooding. This is just one part of a coastal flooding-resistant park that also protects NYU Langone Hospital further north, as well as residences and businesses in Sunset Park. Looking out the windows to your right as you hurry along the Grand Hall, you can get a glimpse of some cattail reeds just peeking into view. A big chunk of the land around the station is a bioswale, a final collection point for all the other bioswales in the area as the water makes its way to the sea. You pass a door as you hurry by and it says Pumping Station A16. Behind it is some equipment that controls the Army Terminal's vast new gray water system. Gray water is basically non-drinkable water, like the water that comes from a bioswale. But it can be used to, say, flush a toilet or to feed the green roofs all over the complex. In the old days, the Army Terminal had a beautiful central atrium, both buildings, with glass ceilings, and they had freight lines that ran straight through the center of the buildings like the contemporary hotel at Disney World. Nowadays, the atrium is preserved, but the multiple interior balconies that kind of lined the sides are now perfect places to set up greenhouses and lab spaces experimenting with new kinds of grow techniques. More than a few startups here specialize in urban agriculture, and the bioswale-fed gray water system provides easy, renewable water to them too. And that's important because climate change has put major stress on our Catskills water supply in 2040. It snows less in the Catskills, and bacteria and phytoplankton are more common in the reservoirs. That means more costly filtering has been needed. By not using drinking water for things like watering plants, we conserve that water. So you finally pull a hard left, pay for your ticket wirelessly, and step onto the Triborough platform. Your train leaves in a few minutes, and it's waiting for you. This is the terminus of the line. The train itself is actually very similar to a normal subway train for 2040, but just a little bit less heavy duty. It's a light rail vehicle, which also helps keep the cost low. Think streamlined metals and glass, wide doors, and pretty open seating layouts. Big windows take advantage of the morning sunlight because these trains are designed to be outdoors. Most of the Triborough line is outdoor, although some of it is decked over with connective parks further down into Brooklyn and Queens. You check out some of the other passengers as you grab a seat. There's a bunch of students headed to Brooklyn College, some high school students heading to make a transfer on the queue line. Roughly 60,000 Brooklynites take the Triborough daily, with more than half of them staying in the borough. 
a bunch more head to Queens, and a few continue all the way out into the Bronx. And a quick note, that estimate's low, because the RPA was only really able to model trips that began and ended along the line. It's not counting the transfers to all the subways and buses that the Triborough connects to, or the ferries or the regional rail lines. So yeah, it's gonna be higher, and we're not even talking yet about the passenger estimates originating in the other two boroughs. In Brooklyn, expect an average triborough train to be about a third as crowded as a normal rush hour R train as it pulls up to Atlantic Avenue. The train's automated PA system comes alive. Now leaving Brooklyn Army Terminal, next stop will be in two minutes at New Utrecht Avenue, 62nd Street. Transfers to the N and D lines. The train gently whooshes east and dives through a two-block-long stretch of girders and pillars that exist directly beneath the two Bay Ridge Towers. A few moments later, a brief flicker of light, and then the train dives down again under the R-Train tracks, and then under the Gowanus Expressway, and emerges out the other side into the open air, passing through Diker Heights. On your left, you quickly overtake an N-Train as it approaches 8th Avenue. The tracks dive down and pass underneath the 8th Avenue N station and swap over to the north side of the valley-like right-of-way. On your left, you link back up with the third Bay Ridge Branch track as it emerges from a deep tunnel connecting to New Jersey. It's the portal to the Cross Harbor Freight Tunnel that nearly all the freight trains use. You quickly whoosh past a few workers in reflective vests and surveying equipment. They are preparing designs for the extension to the Triborough Line. You read in the news that the goal was to have the Triborough go all the way to St. George in Staten Island, linking up Staten Island's rail network and providing the first real rail connection between the Forgotten Borough and the rest of New York City in the island's history. But that's a while away. For now, the train pulls up to New Utrecht Avenue. The tracks split off from the end line, which heads south. The Triborough will continue east. Above, you can make out the D-Line's elevated station. A few people head out, going to work at a new community makerspace building that was constructed to house the new station transfers. The next stop will be McDonald Avenue, Avenue I, in two minutes. Transfers to the F train. Stand clear of the closing doors. The train takes off again, speeding past more parkland. You catch a glimpse of some more bicyclists through a window. McDonald Avenue is just a simple platform, stairs, and an ADA elevator taking you up to street level. It's a free transfer to the F-Line a block south, just on the border between Midwood and Borough Park. The train takes off again. Next stop, Avenue H, East 16th Street, in two minutes, transfers to the Q-Train. It's a similar station as the previous one, with a free transfer a block north to the elevated Q platform at Avenue H. Next stop, Brooklyn College two minutes, transfers to the two and five trains. The train pulls in underneath a brand new Brooklyn College campus building built above the new underground transfer that connects all the different subway platforms. This is your stop, but you glance back at the rest of the Triborough map. Utica Avenue, Brooklyn Terminal Market, Avenue D, and the three and L train are only eight minutes away at Livonia Avenue. The LIRR is 10 minutes away at East New York. Wilson Avenue, Myrtle Avenue in Queens, the M at Metropolitan is 16 minutes away. Grand Avenue, Queens Boulevard, Jackson Heights and the 7 E, R, F, and M, 21 minutes away. Northern Boulevard, LaGuardia Airport, yeah, 
LaGuardia Airport's only 25 minutes away, maybe a half hour from Bay Ridge. Astoria, Ditmars on the NW, about the same, about 30 minutes from Bay Ridge as well. Then the train will continue on to Randall's Island, a massive island park off Manhattan, which is nearly impossible to get to. But now it's only 38 minutes from Bay Ridge. 149th Street, 3rd Avenue in the Bronx and the 2-5 and the 4. Hunts Point and the 6 train and the Metro North, 42 minutes away. Parkchester and the Bronx Zoo, 47 minutes. Morris Park, 50. And then, finally, the terminus, Co-op City South, Amtrak, Orchard Beach, the end of the 6 line, 55 minutes away. The end of the 6 line. Can you imagine? That's nearly an hour shaved off of that commute. And that's the Triborough. Yeah, I know. It's idealized, but we need to know what our goals are as a progressive community if we're going to see the future we want. Because rest assured, developers with only dollar signs in their eyes already have a plan for what they want the future to be. And it looks like Industry City. It looks like gentrification. It looks like luxury condos. It looks like not Bay Ridge. And the Triborough isn't all that unusual. The bioswales, the coastal storm defenses, the mixed-use development, the community land trusts, the parks, the bikeways, the tunnels, the food, the freight. This is all known stuff that planners have been trying to implement for years, decades, or more. These strategies have been planned and researched and proposed over and over again. These are planners that genuinely love our city and are worried about it like a parent. They're scientists, data experts, policy wonks. A lot of the time, we look at how broken our city is, and we lose faith. I don't. There's an amazing thing that works about New York, and it's a miracle, an uplifting miracle, that it's held us together for so long. But we need to move forward. The more we grip onto the past, the worse the present gets, because we're relinquishing control to people who don't care about the past. The Triborough was first suggested in 1996, but that little walkthrough I just gave, it's an interpretation of just one of the design proposals made in 2017. There's lots of ways to lay down the Triborough, but they all use the same route, and pretty soon, we're going to actually get another batch of data, because in January, for the first time, the MTA committed to a full study of the Triborough's feasibility. That might be where you kinda heard the name before. But who knows what'll happen? Andy Byford's gone. Maybe the cash-strapped MTA is gonna just bury the proposal. Or maybe not. Because what the next design looks like isn't entirely up to the MTA. It's up to communities like ours. But in order to learn more about that, and what stands between us and the Triborough? We had to go to the source, the RPA, the Regional Plan Association. So I took an R train to the RPA's headquarters in downtown Manhattan to get more details about what we can do to help this project along. And I'm not going to lie, I geeked out a lot. <laughs> so excuse my giddiness as I'm joined by Molin Mehta, a senior associate with their state programs and advocacy unit. So I'm hanging out in the Regional Plan Association headquarters in downtown Manhattan, and we're here with... My name is Molin. I'm on the State Programs and Advocacy team here at RPA. We've already heard a lot about what the Triborough is and where it goes, what it does, what it looks like, 
How did just an average person living in a neighborhood next to where one of the Triborough's routes is going to go, how can they help advocate for and push this project that's kind of been in limbo for a long time? So as you know, the MTA is officially studying the line. And so we haven't gotten a clear timeline on how long that study is going to take. But we know that kind of like that's the first step and really building that community support is critical so that at the end of the feasibility study, you know, fingers crossed that it comes out somewhat affordable and able to be pushed forward. We have a base of community members ready to tell their elected officials, ready to tell their community boards, hey, go out, support this project. We want to see it built. So local electeds and community boards are key in this process. Definitely. We actually, you know, in the process to get the MTA to fund the study, we worked with a number of elected officials and transit advocates to call on the MTA to fund the study. At the community board level, what we really need to do is figure out what are the main concerns that people have around this project and what are some of the things that they're hoping to get out of having increased access to the subways and having this new transit line. So talking to your community board, following us on social media and on our email and telling us, you know, what are some of the reasons you think that this is an important line so that we can use that information as we talk Mm -hmm. to stakeholders, as we talk to businesses, as we talk to the MTA and other elected officials, I think is is really critical. What was the background on the MTA even starting this study? Like this happened before we even scheduled this interview and it happened between then and now. So what really caused them to decide to even study this in the first place after so long? As you know, the MTA put out their fast forward plan, I think it was 2018. Yeah. And as part of that, we saw that as a time where there was an ambitious goal to modernize the existing subway system. And we thought, you know, it would be the right time to start thinking about, okay, if we're going to have these things in place that are going to make the existing system great, it still doesn't serve so many people in the city. What can we do? And this, as you know, the Triborough has been advocated for by RPA for, you know, almost two decades or more at this point. And it was really a project that was pushed for people that are already living in those neighborhoods. You know, in the 90s, there was the economic crisis. We saw that in order to keep things going and have people have better access to opportunity, we really needed to think about transportation in New York City in a different way. Yeah. And so we've been advocating for this. We've been meeting with elected officials. And we know for about a year and a half, our goal was to say, okay, when the MTA puts out their new capital plan, we our goal is to have them fund a study. In it. And so we... <laughs> You know, we worked with all the elected officials and transit advocates that support this. We called on the MTA to do it. And without any political wrangling, you know, it happened. So we're really excited and glad that they're going to do this. Yeah. So in addition to local electeds, what's the role of community boards in like building a more efficient plan? We see it as a responsibility to the project and to the years of advocacy to really show the MTA there is broad support for this. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of ideas for infrastructure projects around the city. We've done the preliminary research. We've shown, you know, at least 100,000 riders a day, if not more at this point, would benefit from this line. But I think showing the MTA that there's a consistent voice of people in the outer boroughs that want to see this come to reality will support their decision-making around what they do after the study is completed. And that's important to like really emphasize as many times as possible, it's that the people who live around the lines are the main beneficiaries and their communities are enhanced, but not necessarily gentrified through this kind of a rail line. You know, as I said earlier, access to opportunity is really a driving force for our advocacy on this line. You know, it could take you sometimes two hours to go from Astoria up to places in the Bronx, right? And it's right there. And so creating these connections and allowing people to move freely and not be reliant on getting in and out of Manhattan is really important. You know, we've done some time estimates that are on the website showing that folks in the Bronx would save 
30 minutes or more on their commutes into Queens mm-hmm. or Brooklyn because of this. And right now you have outer borough residents spending, what, 70 to 90 hours extra in their yeah. commuting mm-hmm. times per year. So that's it's a lot of time. And it's a lot of time, you know, avoiding opportunity, avoiding the amenities that the city has to offer, open space, museums, other forms of recreation, spending time with friends. You know, these are all things that we as New Yorkers kind of take for granted when we have access to transit. But if we don't, we kind of lose that. There's a lot of other forces making change, whether good or bad, in the city. And, there, you know, we have the affordable housing crisis, pushing people out of the city center, pushing people away from well-served transit centers. So creating a new form of passenger service that'll help communities that have traditionally been left out better connect to the transit network. And again, better access to opportunity, I think, is, is crucial for this. And that's key for a lot of the activists and progressives listening, like how this ties into so many other issues like affordable housing, like maintaining the viability of existing ethnic communities and fighting against gentrification, to be arguing for upzoning, to be arguing for better economic access for people in lower income and disenfranchised communities to be able to commute to other parts of the outer boroughs rather than everyone having to just get a job in Manhattan. So how do you design for that? How do you design to make sure that those things are taken advantage of? by the people who need to take advantage of them, that developers don't buy up land around new subway stops and things like that. It's something that the whole city has been grappling with. We see it with the rezonings right now. We see it with some of the community plans that are stuck in limbo. Nobody has really found the answer to make the community planning process more efficient, have more teeth so that all the decisions are based on that. And we really want to see, as the line gets pushed forward, hopefully, We want to see a good, viable community planning process around where the stations are built, whether that's access to jobs, whether that's designing the areas around the stations, whether that's, you know, figuring out, okay, if there's going to be new investments, how that gets targeted to improve the opportunities for people that are existing in those neighborhoods. But I do think it's hard to predict something like that because even though one of the biggest uh, selling points for the line is, you know, it's already great separated, it's there, it might be quicker and easier to build. It's still a long way away, right? Like we still have to finish the study. Then there's going to be back and forth to figure out funding, if it's viable and all that before we put shovels in the ground to make this reality. So there's a lot of things that are going to happen in the city between now and when the project starts. And I think RPA is working on a lot of different fronts, not just the Triborough, but we're looking at secret reform. We're working mm-hmm. on fairer land use ideas around the city. So there's a lot of things at play that we think if done successfully can come together so that when this project gets started, there's systems in place to help the community retain a lot of the value and benefits of it. So if we're going in and we're talking at our local community boards and we're talking amongst ourselves, like what are some of the things that the RPA could use, especially on community boards and from local electeds? What do we want to ask them to do to further the support of this project? So, you know, now that the study is underway, we are traveling around to community boards along the line to educate their transportation committees and the boards about the project, get feedback so that we have some more grounded, granular information. And what we would love is to get the community boards to put in a board resolution supporting the project, if that's something that's possible, and if the board's in agreement on that, because then we can just show the MTA they really need to take this idea seriously, just to show that people want it and that the advocacy is already in place to make it a reality. And this is a call to action for activists and community organizers in Bay Ridge, in Sunset, and Diker, and all the way along the line. People always complain that, oh, New York hasn't had a visionary infrastructure project 
since like the 30s or the 40s. And this is something that's been waiting for a while. We have had it. It's about us organizing around it. So if you're interested, you know, start thinking about this. Just hang out with a bunch of friends, talk about what it would mean, what you'd want to see. Go to your local community board meeting. You can sign up just at the top of the hour to talk about something. This could be one of them. Get things in people's head that this is something that you want, because this will dramatically change both Bay Ridge, Southern Brooklyn, all of the outer boroughs. And if we're in on the ground floor, we're going to be the ones that are shaping it and making it better. I encourage anyone that's interested in this project to reach out to us, follow us. We'll keep you updated and really build support. Mullen, thanks so much for joining me way back in January. And to our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. Obviously, coronavirus has thrown a massive spanner into this project. Our city is in the middle of a massive economic crisis, and we haven't heard word about the status of the Triborough study. We wouldn't blame the MTA for putting it way out on the back burner considering the economic crisis we find ourselves in. But, you know, I'm glad we decided to air this episode. Like I said at the beginning, it's a nice way of looking at the future and also to tie together so many little threads and strategies and passions across the activist spectrum and see how they might combine. I had a friend a few days ago mention how one of the things keeping them going lately was the knowledge that after all the activism and all the work and all the love that we pour into this community, one day, one day, we will get to enjoy a better neighborhood than the one we started with. Not the same one, a better one. So thanks to the RPA for putting together this plan and the firm's only if and one architecture who I gleefully scavenged from and built on when imagining my walking tour. And thanks to you, our listeners, for sticking with us. Our Patreon is off to a lovely start, and we've already passed our first goal, and we're on our way to making the podcast entirely cost-neutral for us. Thank you so much. So please remember also to follow the Regional Plan Association on Twitter at Regional Plan, and check out our show notes for links to all the amazing in-depth art and graphics and maps that accompany this proposal. And of course, Check us out on Twitter at Radio Free BR and Facebook at Radio Free Bay Ridge or on the web at RadioFreeBayRidge.org. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, since coming up very soon is a mini episode with Rachel on absentee balloting in Bay Ridge. And remember to fill out your census. And with that, stay free, Bay Ridge. Stay free, Bay Ridge.